This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Blessed Sunday in the month of the Sacred Heart. I have a short reflection here for you for, well, not really so short, but it's a reflection from Fulton Sheen on humility. He's not really speaking so much directly about humility, but he is talking about the most proud people in the society at his time and still today. The group he calls the Intelligentsia. Here he compares the Intelligentsia to the cross of Christ and to our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Hope you find this helpful during this month of the Sacred Heart. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen now addresses the Catholic Hour audience. Monsignor Sheen has entitled today's talk, The Fourth Word to the Cross, A Word to the Intelligentsia. Monsignor Sheen. Friends, every age has its intelligentsia. And by the intelligentsia, we here mean not the educated, but those who have been educated beyond their intelligence. A sponge can hold so much water. A person can hold so much education. When the point of saturation is reached in either, the sponge becomes a drip and the person a bore. All the intelligentsia are proud because of the alleged superiority which their learning gives them. Their judgment of others is based on what they know rather than on conscience. Religion they judge by their own standards. And whenever they write on the subject of religion, they always entitle their articles, My Idea of Religion. They never inquire about God's idea of religion. Today they judge religion by whether or not it corresponds to their views on politics. In the face of real learning, they talk comparative religion. In the face of simple faith, they mock and sneer. To them, the hallmark of culture is to be irreligious. They once doubted the existence of God but nothing else. Now they doubt even their own doubts. What impact does the cross make upon them? One needs only go to their intellectual progenitors to study their reaction. The fourth word addressed to the cross of our Lord came from the intelligentsia of his time, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And looking up to the cross, they addressed the fourth word to it. They said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The intelligentsia always know enough about religion to distort it. Hence they took each of the three titles which our Lord had claimed for himself. Savior, King of Israel, and Son of God, and they turned them into ridicule. 
first savior. Now they could admit that he had saved others, probably the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Naim and Lazarus. They could afford to admit it now, for the Savior himself stood in need of salvation. He saved others, they said, himself he cannot save. To them the conclusive miracle was still lacking. The poor fools. Of course he cannot save himself. The rain cannot save itself if it is to bud the greenery. The sun cannot save itself if it is to light a world. And the soldier cannot save himself if he is to save his country. And Christ cannot save himself if he is to save all men. King of Israel, they said. That title the crowd gave him after he fed the multitude and fled into the mountains alone. They repeated it again on Palm Sunday when they strewed branches beneath his feet. And now that title they mocked as they sneered, If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. Must all the kings of earth be seated on golden thrones? Maybe here was a king who decided to rule from a cross. To be king not of bodies through power, but of hearts through love. Their own literature was full of the idea of a king who would come to glory through humiliation. How foolish then to mock a king because he refuses to come down from his throne. And if he did come down, they would be the first to say, as they had said before, he did it through the power of Beelzebub. Son of God. He trusted in God, they said. Let God deliver him if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Irreligious forces have their holidays in moments of great catastrophes. In wartime they ask, where is thy God now? Why is it that in time of trouble it is always God that is put on trial and not man? Why in this war should judge and culprit change places as man asks, why does God not stop the war? And to all the good on earth who have been mocked because of their faith in God, I say, you are not without an example. That sneer that you receive in your office because out of love for this Good Friday passion of your Lord, you abstain from meat on Friday. The turned-up lips and the barbed laughter you suffer because of your loyalty to the church. The ridicule of your fellow soldiers as you kneel at your cot in the barracks and pray. All these are but echoes of the taunts your Lord received on Calvary. But he did not come down from his cross. He said, be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven.
But why does not he who is the morning star put out the darkness of this hour? Because this is the moment when he wills to make atonement for the sins of men. The essence of sin is twofold. It involves a turning from God and a turning to creatures. So he who is without sin now wills to feel these two effects of sin. Because sin involves turning to creatures, he suffers at the hands of men. Because sin involves a turning from God, he permits himself to feel divine abandonment as in the midst of the rasping mockery he cries with a loud voice, My God, my God, why? Why hast thou abandoned me? This was his answer to the intelligentsia. He was talking about sin, not knowledge. Sin is a separation from God. Sin is supreme loneliness. Sin separates man from God and man from man. And this disruptive power of sin, which is permanent in hell, our Lord now allows to devastate his inmost soul that he might suffer what we deserve for our sins. That fellowship between God and man which was broken by sin, he now feels as his own. For his cry reveals that the essence of sin is not a mission. It is a dismissal. That is what sin deserves. Mockery from men. Rejection by God. Such is the worm and the fire of hell. Creatures run out of love when they are mocked and betrayed. They touch bottom and they say, I wash my hands of you. But love refuses to leave the sinner even in sin. We have no expression for the opposite of washing our hands of a person except the words of Isaiah. The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. To bear sin meant to go on loving even in the midst of a crucifixion. I can go on sinning despite that love for I am free. But when I see our Lord still loving me when I crucify him, and when I see him still praying to God for me even when I abandon him, and never losing faith in me, though I lose faith in him, by that very fact I am made penitent. For how can I go on sinning in face of love like this? I may not be at the end of my journey, but I am at the end of my rebellion. A child sins seriously. The mother suffers because of that sin. And the suffering varies in direct relationship to her love and the gravity of the sin. Because the son loves the child, and the mother loves the child, rather she cannot let that child suffer the effects of sin alone. She enters into it. She shares it. 
If the child sees the mother suffering, the child will be drawn to penitence. Then the mother can forgive. And our Lord so loves us that he took our sins upon himself as if he were guilty and draws us freely to repentance by the price he paid to save us. Hence, forgiveness is no glib thing. The cross was the supreme expression of the righteousness of God. If the redemption of man were done without cost, it would insult us. For no man with a sense of justice wants to be let off. It would insult God. For the whole moral order founded on justice would be impugned. The cross is the eternal proof that no sin is forgiven through indifference. God safeguards his justice even at the very moment that he forgives. All ye like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned his own way. And he who knew no sin, he hath made sin for us that we might be made the justice of God in him. And I wonder in the light of that word from the cross if the modern hatred of religion is not to a great extent determined by the way men live. Do not men delude themselves by making the creed fit the way they live rather than making the way they live fit the creed? Is not the modern mockery of religion but the vain attempt to ignore it? Why is it that the intelligentsia are more interested in destroying faith in others than in giving others their own incertitude? The intelligentsia have told others that to believe in God is foolishness. But what wisdom do they give as a substitute? Why is it they never think of making anyone better? but only wiser according to their own judgment. A few years ago, I instructed a young man in one of the large colleges of the East, a college, incidentally, that was founded to teach religion. His classmates used to ridicule him by buying rosaries and swinging them before his eyes as they passed him on the campus. Why do the intelligentsia mock? In the face of facts like this, one really asks himself if learning brings understanding. Hence a few special words of pleading to the intelligentsia. When in the darkness of your soul you feel disquieted and your conscience haunts you, Think not that that is due to any psychological explosions from an unconscious or subconscious mind. It is the call of God. As you lie awake at night and ponder over your sins, for darkness brings out one's own darkness, as you mourn the loss of relatives and friends and ponder on the problem of death, as you feel stirred by the purity, sacrifice, and faith of others, even when you ridicule, as you try to throw off a thousand qualms of conscience a day, ask yourself 
what these promptings really are. They are actual graces, divine solicitations, beckoning calls of the shepherd to lost sheep. Do not frustrate them, then, by introducing speculative questions, as did the woman of the well. For the root of your discontent is in your morals, not in your minds. If some of you have been away from the sacraments for 20 years or more, stop justifying your rebellion against God by false reasons saying that you no longer believe in confession. Yes, you do. Your quasi-intellectual opposition is a camouflage for your moral cowardice. You are afraid to face your sins. So you attack the church. Get down on your knees. Humble yourself before God. Make a holy hour every day every Jew and Protestant and Catholic and spend it, Catholics particularly. The morning of Mass, prolong it for a half hour. Send for this little booklet on friends. Teach you how to be friends with yourself, with neighbor and with God. God knows your loneliness. He felt it on the cross. He knows your needs. He bought them on Calvary. Love has not passed you by. It is only the bowl of human affection that you drank dry, not the chalice of salvation. And a humble and contrite heart, the Savior will never reject. And may you then pray in the language of the ancient prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardon that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God love you.